I don't have to go to church to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You ever heard anybody say that before? My guess is if you've ever tried to share your faith or talk about church with someone else, my guess is you've probably heard somebody say that. I don't have to go to church to know about God. And honestly, I think it sounds like when people say that, there's some truth to that. I think it's true that we can develop a relationship with God outside of church. I think we absolutely ought to have a relationship with God and need to have a relationship with God outside of church. And so I sympathize with the point. It seems like a fair point. I mean, the scriptures are readily available to us, right? I mean, you could go to church at home in your underwear on your couch, you know, watch it online now. I mean, you can do that nowadays. You can do that sort of thing, right? And so... uh, I mean, what's wrong with that? Do we really need church today? I've had a lot of people tell me this phrase over the years, that I don't need to go to church to know about God. There's a lot of people that have said that to me. I'm sure that a lot of people have said it to you. Now, I wonder how many of you have ever heard someone else say that? I want you to raise your hands. It's not. So a lot of people. Let me ask you now. We're getting a little personal. I'm starting to meddle. I know that. How many of you have ever thought that, and I'm not going to ask you if you feel that way now, how many of you have ever thought that in your life, that I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? How many of you have ever thought that? Put them up high. Okay, a lot, a lot of us. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you still think that way, okay? I don't want to put you on the spot quite that much. But I think there's a lot of people that have this idea, this perspective, that it's not important to go to church. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You can be a Christian without attending a church. There's a couple things that run through my mind when I hear someone say that, and I usually address these things with them. The thing that I'll ask about, I'll say, well, how do you know about God? And usually they'll say, well, the Bible, the Bible tells me about God. And my first point is this, that you do realize that the Bible, the majority of the New Testament, the vast majority, all the New Testament was written to the church, right? I mean, that, that was who, I mean, it was a letter, It wasn't in book form, it was a letter. Paul would write letters, other apostles wrote letters, authors of the Bible wrote letters. They wrote letters and they addressed it to a church. And they sent it to a church. And that church sent it to another church, which sent it to another church. And now that's how you and I read the Bible today, is because these letters were addressed to the church. So there's a little bit of irony in that statement, right? Another thing that goes uh, through my mind is, uh, do you know who the Bible says the bride of Christ is? The church. Now, I don't know about you, and I've said this before, I think, but um, I don't, and I know this is inconceivable, but if any of you were to ever say, I like you, Nate, but, you know, your wife, I don't want to have much to do with her. That would never happen, but if it did, you know what I would say to you? I'll love you like a Christian, but I'm not going to have anything to do with you. If you have no use for my wife, I've got no use for you. Sorry. And so if we have this attitude of, well, I don't need the church, I have no use for the church, I wonder what are we saying about the bride of Christ? Another thing that I think about is when people say, I believe in God. That's a a good thing. I mean, the Bible talks about belief. It talks about those who believe in him will be saved. That's John 3.16, like everybody's favorite verse, you know. But I think about a passage in James where James says, okay, you believe in God, good. Even the demons believe that. So what I'm saying is it's one thing to say we believe, it's another thing to believe. But I think it is a fair question to ask, is church important? And if so, why is it? 
And when I hear somebody say, um, you know, it's not important to go to church, to me it's almost kind of like, can you imagine an athlete? Let's say this athlete does everything they can do to train their body. Let's say they don't eat anything, they don't put anything into their body that isn't useful, that isn't good for them. Let's say they are just, they have the world's strictest diet, okay? Let's say they... um, get up before the sunrise and they work out and they, they have the, the, the latest technology and weightlifting equipment. They have uh, top, you know, top-notch trainers, all this stuff. I mean, they, they put gobs of money into it. Let's say they do all this. Let's say they become a student of the game and yet they decide not to play any games or ever show up for practice. Wouldn't that be frustrating? Can you imagine being a coach of, say, a football team, and somebody did all that, studied the playbook, was a great athlete, you know, fastest person out there, and and had great hands and all this stuff. Can you imagine being a coach knowing somebody was out there, but yet they were unwilling to play the game or show up at practice? I would feel better about somebody that had absolutely no skills in football than to know that there's somebody that's capable but not willing to play the game. You know what I'm saying? And isn't it almost like that sometimes when we have an attitude of, church not being important. I mean, the coach can't use a player like that. A team certainly can't use a player. But I, I think it is an important question for us to understand what the church ought to be, what it is, why it's important. So last week, we talked about how the church is not a building. The church is people. And before there were Christians, before we had that phrase, the word Christian is only mentioned, I think, two or three times in the Bible. Before people were called Christians like we are today, they were simply called disciples. And a disciple is a follower. And when you follow something, in other words, being a Christian means being a follower. And if you follow something, doesn't that suggest, doesn't that assume that there's movement, that there's growth, that you don't stay in the same place, but that you keep moving? Isn't that what a follower does? And so my question is, for people who don't, think that church is important, when's the last time? And even people that do, even the people that fill the pews every week, my question to you is this. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a disciple, which is a follower, when's the last time you grew in your faith? When's the last time you took a step closer to the person God has called you to be? If a Christian is a follower, the question is, are you? Now, you might be asking, now, what does this have to do with church? Well, the church is made up of people. We talked last week about how when we lose something, we try to go back to the last place we remember having it. And the same is true as we're talking about church. If we really want to make sure the church is doing what the church ought to be doing, we got to look back at when the church first began, what it first started as. What did their faith look like? So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this might be familiar to some of you, and we're going to actually read, um, I guess, the lesser known part of Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 41 through 47. Acts 2, 41 through 47, if you got a Bible, open it up, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or if nothing else, we'll have it up on the screen here, Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47. This is what it says. So, the, so those who received his word, it's talking about Peter, Peter's talking, they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Now, this follows what we call, this is actually part of, the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost was this great day. It was just over a week after Jesus ascended into heaven. All the believers were still gathered uh, in Jerusalem. The the apostles, the disciples are all together. They're in a room. And all of a sudden, there's this sound of a mighty rushing wind. And Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And so the Holy Spirit comes and it's attributed by this great sound, like, the, like this wind. And it was so, I mean, you could hear it so clearly that people began to come. It says a multitude, a multitude of people began to come find out, where, what is this noise? Where is it coming from? What is this? And so they made their way to the house and it says that the Holy Spirit descended on these people. They said it looked like tongues of fire. So you'll see sometimes in paintings, you know, believers with little wisps of fire above their head. We don't know exactly if that was a literal thing, exactly what was meant by that, but we know that the Holy Spirit fell on these people. So much that these people that came to see the the apostles, the apostles, they were speaking their native tongue. These people, they came from all over the world. They were there in Jerusalem uh, for different reasons, whether trade or for Passover. They were there. They spoke different languages, but yet somehow they understood what the apostles were saying. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability to understand tongues that they didn't speak so that they could hear the word of God. And and so people are excited and they're speaking these tongues and and everybody's talking. And it says that not everybody's impressed. If you read the first half of chapter 2, especially the Jewish, Jewish people, they say, you know, it's 10 in the morning. How is it that these people are this drunk this early? That's literally what they say. They say, these people are acting crazy. They've got to be drunk. And so Peter says, no, we're not drunk. And he begins to address these people, and he teaches them. He talks about the Old Testament prophecies, Joel, how it, how it talked about Jesus. And he says, Jesus was the Messiah, and you killed him. And it says that they were cut to the heart. And they said, well, what, what do we do? And Peter said exactly what John the Baptist said, exactly what Jesus said after him. He said, repent. Be baptized. Repent means to turn, to change your direction. He said, repent and show your obedience through baptism. And they did. That was all it took, that one conversation. And there are so many many people that make that same decision. They make the decision to be baptized, right? And yet that's kind of where their faith stops. And there's a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I was baptized when I was 10 or 12 or 20 or whatever it is. Um, and that was kind of the last step of faith that they ever took. We kind of treat sometimes like, like Christianity is almost like, you know, baptism's like this rubber stamp. And you get, you get dunked in water and you get a big old rubber stamp across your forehead that says Christian. And you get to carry that title with you wherever you go. Sometimes that's how we act, isn't it? Is that really what happens? Is that really how it works, that as long as you're dunked in water and you call yourself a Christian, that you're a Christian? Well, we need to understand that that's not how it worked for these men. See, what I want you to understand about the church is that the church is made up of people, people that have open hearts, open minds, open arms, and open hands, common people who do uncommon things. It starts with an open heart, and that's what we see in these men, a willingness to accept to believe in something that was bigger than them. 
Now, there's certain things that kind of we naturally open our heart to, right? Like, like kids. Like, it's easy to kind of open our hearts to kids, right? I mean, even, even you know, big, tough, gruff guys, like, you get a kid involved and, and like, I mean, they turn into a softy, you know? So, I mean, kids, we open our heart to kids. That's easy to do. Or, or, or somebody that we have affection for. I'll never forget, you know, the day that Liz walked into the church office that I was working in. She, had, she didn't know I existed even a little bit after that. But anyways, I uh, saw her come in, and I'll never forget that moment when I saw her. It was easy for me to open my heart uh, to Liz. Uh, that's easy. There are certain things that, that just kind of open our hearts naturally, but there's some things that rip our heart open, right? And when you see something that you wish you didn't see, you see a child being treated the way they shouldn't be, or you see poverty. I mean, have you seen these videos of these chemical attacks in Syria and, and just the outcomes from that? I mean, just heartbreaking, gut-wrenching things, things that just rip your heart open. Well, that's what happened here in this case. Verse 37 says that when, when Peter was preaching to them and he said, hey, you killed Jesus and he was the Messiah, it says they were cut to the heart. I mean, this ripped their heart open. They had done something, participated in something that they couldn't undo. They had helped kill the Messiah. But you see, true belief starts with an open heart. Open heart surgery, it's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Very invasive. I mean, I can remember my grandpa, before he passed away, he had heart surgery a couple decades ago, I think it was. And I remember they gave him a pillow that he'd hug, you know, when he coughed because everything, you know, everything had been wide open. And, and I mean, that's, that's, that's a gruesome, kind of a, a bloody, vulnerable thought, you know, to place your life into the hands of someone else, a surgeon, a doctor. It's kind of the same when you follow Jesus. You open your heart to somebody bigger than you. These guys, they immediately opened their hearts to God. They were baptized. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people. That's a vulnerable place, isn't it? To take your life and to place it in the hands of Jesus. That's scary stuff. But what I want you to understand is a lot of you have taken the same step, right? You have taken a step and you've been baptized, but you stopped there. These guys didn't stop there. They were baptized, but then it continues to, to tell the story of what happened with them. The first thing is they had a heart open, an open heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second thing is we see that they have an open mind. Now, we've got to be a little careful about this, don't we? This world loves to talk about being open-minded. They love to talk about how Christians are closed-minded, right? So we need to be careful. My dad, he used to tell me growing up, he said, be open-minded, but don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. He always used to say that to me. Uh, we're talking about being open-minded, not being Oprah-minded, if you know what I mean, you know? And not uh, this buffet kind of religion. That's what I'm not, I'm not talking about that when it comes to being open-minded. I'm saying we be, need to be open-minded to the gospel. It's just like, you know, you think of Eastern religions and how they talk about meditation. And, and we talk about meditation in Christianity, but they're completely different things. In Eastern meditation, it's, you know, empty your mind, you know, and, and, and come to a higher plane of enlightenment and all this garbage. And when we talk about meditation, we're talking about meditating on something, not emptying our minds, but filling our minds with what the Bible has to say. And that's what these men did. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't have a Bible, a nice leather-bound Bible like you and I have. They didn't have that. They relied on the word of the apostles. And it says that they devoted them themselves to the apostles' teaching. When I think about devotion, I think about, I did a uh, funeral this week uh, for a lady, and honestly, I didn't know her very well at all. I'd never met her, uh, but she was married. Her husband preceded her in death by like, I think, seven or eight years, 
And they were still married 64 years before he passed away. And that's devotion, right? To spend that long with, a, with one single person. I mean, that is devotion. But you know what, what really clicked with me this week? When you're devoted to something, have you ever thought about the fact that in order to be devoted to something, you have to abandon other things? You ever thought about that? I mean, devotion assumes abandonment. When you devote yourself to one person or one thing, that means that you have to abandon other things. If you're going to be devoted to one person, that means that you have to abandon, you know, I don't know, whatever, dating other women or talking to other women. And in my opinion, having any sort of deep relationship with, with women, that, that needs to, you need to abandon that in order to be devoted to one person. And the same is true in our faith as well. If we are devoted, it says they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, they had to abandon a lot to do that. Now, for a short time, we read it here, they were allowed to go into the temple, but that came to an end. Pretty soon, the Jews got fed up enough with the Christians that they said, you can't come in here anymore. They kicked them out. So that, I mean, that's a huge part of their culture. They had to give that up to be devoted to the apostles, to be devoted to God. They gave up a lot in culture. I mean, the culture in this area, it revolved around the temple, and that had been, eventually that was taken away from them. They were rejected by a lot of their family members, uh, just like what happens today when, um, when people who... Um, are Muslim, become Christians. They're completely, they're outcast from their family. They want nothing to do with them. So all that they gave up in order to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. They opened their mind to their teaching. Just like the apostles sat at Jesus' feet, they were sitting at the apostles' feet learning about the kingdom of God. And what we see here in this passage, what I just read, it's not just a Sunday thing for them. It said they were getting together daily. At this time, they were allowed to go to the temple. They were going to the temple every single day to talk about the word of God. That's a hard thing to do, right? To be committed to doing that. I'm starting to get little glimpses of it in my life. I've got a, a, just a solid group of guys that surround me. And uh, every day, you know, we're sharing scripture at least once a day. Sometimes two or three times a day, we're sharing scripture with one another. I think that's a little modern glimpse of what that looks like today. You see, they had open hearts to the gospel. They had open minds to the apostles' teaching. The third thing we see is that they had open arms to each other. And this is where we're really getting to the heart of why church is important, what church is about. We talked about this question last week, and I want you to listen to this if you weren't here. Last, well, even if you were here, please don't tune me out yet. But um, the church, if I were to ask you to describe the church, what words would you use? If I say, what is church, what would you say? Now, if I were to ask you, okay, what is church only using what you find in the Bible, then what would you say? And I think if we only describe church using the Bible, there's only a list of just a few things that we'd end up with. And, and the first thing that really stands out is love. That's what we talked about last week, that, that the church is, is not a building, it's people. And it's people that have this love for one another that the world doesn't understand, Somehow, someway, we get people that are very different and have different opinions, but we come together because we have one thing in common, and that's Jesus. And that's the most important thing. So we have this love for one another. That's the first thing. But the second thing that describes the church, and what I really want to focus on today, is that if you look at the Bible, and you look at church in the Bible, it talks about how they not only have a love for one another, but they gather they gather together. They huddle up. They put their arms around each other on a regular basis. And what we see here when they were uh, devoted to the apostles' word, you know, every single day, that was their church service. They didn't have the fancy buildings like we have and things like that. They simply got together and talked about the word of God. What else did they do, though? 
You ever wondered about that? I mean, we know what church is today, but what was church in the very beginning? What did it start off like? What did church look like 2,000 years ago? Another question is, does our church need to look like it did 2,000 years ago? Should we aim for that? Well, you want to know, I don't get the chance to use, some of you guys use, you, you use tool. I can't speak today. You use tools every single day, right? Me, it's not very often that I use a tool. I'm, it's kind of embarrassing to admit. I sit behind a desk most of the time. I do like using tools. I'm not particularly good at it, but I do like, I like tools. And one of my favorite tools of all time is a sawzall. I love that tool because it's versatile. You can cut metal, PVC, you can cut wood with it. You don't want to do everything with it. It's not good for everything, but it's just, it's got a lot of flexibility. You can use it for a lot of different things. But another thing about sawzalls and the reason why I like it is uh, the blades on them are really thin and you can kind of, they're bendable, they're flexible. And there's some times where you need to kind of get at something at an angle and you might be able to get to it with a sawzall and not other things. That's what I like about it. But you got to be careful because if you bend it too much, the blade pretty easily will break. The reason I'm talking about that is because the same is true in church that I think there's certain things within a church where we can be flexible. Certain things change over time, but there are certain things that should not, do not, cannot change over time. As a church, the elements of worship, what we see in the Bible as far as what is included in worship, that shouldn't change. We should be doing the same things. We should be dedicated to the same things the disciples were. Now, do we have to do all the same things every single time that we get together? I don't, I don't know that. But I do know that as a whole, we need to be passionate and dedicated to the same things the apostles were. Does it matter how we do those things? Not particularly. I don't think so. I think there's flexibility. But objects and elements of worship, those are inflexible. How we do those things, I think, are flexible over time. So what are some elements of worship? What are some things that as a church we should be committed to just like the apostles were? Well, the first thing we see here is that they gathered. We already talked about it, but they were gathering. Now, I want to tell you that private worship, what you do away from this church building, is so important. That you are personally committed to, a, to your faith and a relationship with Christ, that is so important. But gathering is important as well. But what I'll tell you is this, and I think I stole this from someone. This isn't mine. But our corporate worship, what we're doing now together... Corporate worship is only as good as your private worship. Does that make sense? In other words, what we do in this place on Sunday morning, the value of it is going to be dictated by what you guys have been doing, what we all have been doing throughout the week. What we do here is a culmination of our private worship, reading the Bible, praying, being dedicated to the Word, all those things that we've done in our private life, those things come to light here. And it becomes kind of a celebration us coming together, sharing our faith so it's important that we gather together. You ever, uh, my son, he, he loves uh, learning about animals. Like he's, it's ridiculous what he knows about animals. I just have to take his word for stuff because I have no idea what he's talking about. So anyways, he loves to watch shows about animals. And you ever watched one of those shows about lions and how a lion hunts? You know what a lion does and a lot of other animals too? What they do is they kind of hide they crouch and they wait. They try to get close to a, a group of, a herd of, of uh, animals. And what they try to do is they try to single one out. They look for one that's sick or slow or injured or weak or off by itself. And then the, the lion attacks the weakest one, the one who's away from all the other animals. 
And I think that's the danger in being a Christian that never gets involved with any community of believers. You're off by yourself. No protection. And I think it's important that we gather together. That's one of the things that describe the churches. But one of the things that people don't consider sometimes is, is there's a lot of people that think, well, I don't really need that. You know, I can get, I can get you know, fed spiritually through the word and through, you know, you know, I go to this church on the web and I can listen to these things. And I'm not saying there's anything bad about those things. But they have this idea that I don't, I don't need a church to do all those things. But the one thing that they miss out on, and the one thing that I never hear people consider, is do they even think about what they might be robbing the church of? Do they ever think about the fact that they are supposed to be a part of a church, and when they're not there, that they might be taking their influence away from that congregation or a person there that might need them there? Do they ever think about that? So it's not just what we need, but man, it's also what other people need from us. And I think it's a super selfish attitude when we have this you know, mindset of, well, the, you know, I don't need church. Man, the church needs you. God wants to use you. It's important to be here. So the first thing is gathered together. That's what the church looked like. They got together a lot. The second thing is teaching. That, this, I mean, the dedicated to the word. This could be a lot of different things. It could be preaching, what we're doing now. It could be a lesson. You know, we're going to have our commit Sunday school groups that meet after, and we'll have, you know, lessons about the word. We have small groups that meet that talk. You know, sometimes we do DVDs. Sometimes we do Bible studies. It could be a testimony. Somebody sharing their testimony about what God has done in their life. It could be music as well. Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, some of you are like, I knew it was in there. It says hymns. We should be singing hymns and hymns alone, right? Now, this was before. I even see some clapping. All right. But don't get too excited, okay? This is before the hymns were written, okay? So we're not just talking about what we know as hymns. You gotta get you gotta put your 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 ancient mindset in this. This is way before any of those songs ever came out. You gotta realize that those hymns that are so special to us, those used to be pretty offensive to some people. They were, you know. But anyways, we're not talking about a, a specific kind of song. It can be a hymn, it can be a chorus, it can be a psalm, it can be, it doesn't matter. And that and did you notice he, he kind of presents different kinds of songs. He says, he says hymns. He says psalms, spiritual songs. It doesn't matter what kind of music it is. What matters is that it's focused on God, that it worships him, and that it is an encouragement to us. That's the point of it. It doesn't matter what it sounds like necessarily. The words matter, but it needs to lift up God, and it needs to be an encouragement to us. Another thing he talks about is the breaking of bread. Now, you might say, well, is that talking about communion or is that talking about like an actual meal? Yes, I think. It doesn't really say, but I think it probably involved both. These people, they were always together. No doubt they shared meals together just like the apostles did with Jesus. But also, I mean, if you think about it, there's something really intimate about sharing a meal with somebody, isn't there? When you sit down with them at the table and you prepare food together, there's something intimate about that. That's important. Believers ought to do that. Also, I think it is talking about communion. Jesus at the Last Supper, he said, I want you to keep doing this in remembrance of me. And I think this, what we do during communion, is the most important thing that we do during a service. If we had to do, with, with, do away with all the elements except for one of a service, this is the one I would keep. 
is communion, remembering what Jesus did on the cross. But it ought to be an intimate thing. The last thing he mentions is prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. And prayer is one of those things that, man, I don't think we ever have a full understanding of, of how it works. But I know this, prayer doesn't change God. I know it looks in the Bible like sometimes that we change God's mind. I don't think that's how it works. I think prayer changes us. It changes our heart. It changes us so that we become concerned about the things that God is concerned with. We become focused on those things. Prayer, it changes us. We begin to seek his will. We begin to thank him for the things that he's done. We celebrate answered prayer. These are all the things that mark the church. That They're dedicated to the word, whether it's preaching, a lesson, testimony, music. Uh, we're dedicated to the breaking of bread. We're, we're dedicated to prayer. Those are the things that the church ought to be doing. Now... Does it matter if you gather in a church of thousands or hundreds of people or in somebody's living room with 12 other Christians? Uh, This might be an unpopular opinion, but no, it doesn't matter. And there is absolutely no biblical thing that you will tell me that's any different than that. That's how they originally did it. Does it matter if it's 12 believers or 2,000 believers? It doesn't matter. As long as it's Christians gathered together, focused on these things. That's a church. That's what the church is. Does it matter if it's hymns or choruses or whether we use instruments or don't use instruments? No. As long as we are exalting the name of God and reminding each other about how good God is. That's what it's about. And sometimes I get people that like to complain about certain, uh, you know, for example, well, some music today is just too repetitive. That's one of the things that keeps coming up. And one of the things that I can't get over is if you look in the Old Testament, some of the songs, you know what you see? Repetition. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. What's that one song where it says it over and over and over? Why? Because sometimes we need to hear things more than once, don't we, to really get it. So I think we need to be careful about our, our uh, criticisms uh, about music. Does it exalt God? Is it an encouragement to us? Those are the only things that matter. Uh, does it matter if we use real wine or grape juice or whether we use leavened bread or unleavened bread? No. As long as we remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Does it matter if we pray out loud or silently or have a prayer list or don't have a prayer list? No, as long as we are seeking after the will of God and trusting him. See, what's important is to have a community of believers that do these things. Committed to the word. They pray. they, They gather together. They celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not just to strengthen believers, but also to add believers. It says here that believers were added every single day. So the church is made up of people that have open hearts to the gospel, open minds to the word of God, open arms to believers, people near and far. But also we have open hands. In other words, we love like no one has ever seen. Colossians tells us that love is what binds us together. And that's what we see in the early church, that they took care of one another. That's a pretty scary thing to think about, isn't it? To take care of one another. You say, what's scary about that? you got to be pretty vulnerable to take care of each other's needs. In order for somebody to take care of a need, you've got to put it out there, right? And that's hard for us to do. I mean, this is pretty intimate to to have the vulnerability where these people are actually taking care of one another. And that that would mean that we'd actually have to admit that we had a need. That's very vulnerable. It's a scary thing. But they were so devoted to one another that they abandoned other things. They took care of each other. And people saw it. 
People saw how they treated one another, and it says that they gained favor. Did you notice this part? They gained favor with everyone. Everybody who saw how the church was acting was just, they couldn't understand it. They, they wanted to know what was happening. You see, the church is made up of people with open hearts, open minds, open arms, and open hands. Common people who will do uncommon things. These men were common people, but they did some uncommon things. They had very uncommon priorities. They were willing to give up other things to be in the word, to be united with each other. They gave up their possessions to make sure that everybody had what they needed. They had uncommon unity. They had everything in common. They wanted to serve the Lord and nothing else mattered to them. They just wanted to serve God. They had uncommon generosity. And sometimes people use this passage to say, well, you know, Christians should uh, support socialism. This is not a political thing here. Okay, one key difference is, you know, the government wasn't forcing these people to be generous. That's not what, we're, not, we're not talking about the same thing here. We're talking about people who, because of the love of, they understood the love of Christ, wanted to share that love with other believers. That's what we're talking about here. It wasn't forced on them. It was something they saw the love of God. They wanted to share it with other people around them. We also see that they have uncommon power. They were able to do things that other people couldn't do. There had to be something to it. That's what other people thought. So the question is, if that's what church looks like, what would it take for La Harp Christian Church to look like that? For common people to do uncommon things, for people to be absolutely blown away by the love and generosity and devotion that we have, what would that take? I think sometimes we see glimpses of it in the church right here, don't we? We see glimpses of this Acts 2 church. We see that sometimes in generosity and the things that people do and in devotion. But in order for us to be that kind of church, it's going to take you. Common people doing uncommon things. People who are willing to open their heart to the Bible, to what it says about God. People who are willing not just to say, I'm a Christian and put the rubber stamp on their forehead and walk around with that title, but people who are actually willing to show that they believe in the way that they act. It's going to take people who are brokenhearted about the things that break God's heart. It's going to take people with open minds, people who want to know the word of God for themselves. Don't you dare take my word for what the word of God says. You've got to be in the word yourself. Don't take my word for it because I mess up and I make mistakes. Even if I think I'm right, I think it's important for you to know what the Bible says for yourself. Be in the word daily, knowing what it says for yourself. Don't take my word or anybody else's word for it. Make it a priority. Wrestle with it. Ask questions. Share it with friends. We need to have open arms. We need to accept, accept people the way that they are. Now, we need to insist that they don't stay the same. That's what God does. See, God takes us where we're at. Jesus accepts us where we're at, but he says, you can't stay here. You've got to grow. That should be our attitude as well. We should welcome anyone near and far from God with open arms. It means letting go sometimes, especially in a small town, of grudges and preferences so that we can have everything in common. There might be somebody in this room that you got a real problem with. Maybe you think about it every time you step in this room. That happens, okay? But part of being united in church is that we're willing to kind of let those things go, that we have open arms to people, that we seek restoration and forgiveness. It also means open hands. Jesus, one of the last things he said to the disciples, he said, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we need to take care of each other physically, and spiritually, and that starts with you. 
And it starts with me. It's not just going to magically happen. It takes people who are Christians doing these things. One final passage of scripture for you. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, to God the Father through him. There's a quote by Brennan Manning that says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, and then they walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. In other words, we got to practice what we preach because the world sees whether we really believe or not. People are looking for something real and genuine, and too many times they have not found it in the church. And that needs to change. Sometimes there's a lack of true belief. People who claim to believe, but yet they're living however they want to live. Sometimes it's a lack of intimacy. You know, we aren't perfect, but we need to be vulnerable in the church. But the change has to start with you. And I love what it says, whatever you do, do it to the name of God. In other words, worship is a lifestyle. If you come into this place and you act like a completely different person from who you are the other six days of the week, that's a problem. That's got to change. And if, that, if that's where you're at right now, I want to tell you, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying it's okay for now. We want to accept you, but you got to change. That has got to change. This, is, this shouldn't be the only time you worship God. This should just be kind of a celebration of what you've been doing the rest of the week. But you can't walk into this place a different, you shouldn't walk into this place and act like a different person from who you are the other days of the week. Worship is a lifestyle. Being a church, you don't go to church, you are the church. That means wherever you go, you are the church. And people know that, don't they? People know that about you. It happens to me all the time. Oh, so-and-so goes to your church? Oof, that happens. That shouldn't be how it is. Our reputation ought to be such that people, they want to know what's up with the Heart Christian Church. And that starts with you, being consistent with what the Word of God says. But the church, the gathering, people coming together, this is what the church is. It's not about the building. It's about the people doing what God has called them to do. And this is important. It's important for you to strengthen your faith. It's important for other people to strengthen their faith as well. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day you've given us today. I thank you that we have the chance to be here in your house. And sometimes, Lord, we treat this like it is the worst, like it's a terrible task for us to come here. Lord, we know that there are brothers and sisters all over the globe that would love to do what we are here to do today, to be together, to be in your house, to use microphones, to be able to talk audibly about the word, to have a Bible in our hands. There are so many believers that would love to have that chance, and we have that, Lord. Help us not take that for granted. Help us to be committed to your word. Help us to be committed to the church. Help us not just be committed to going to church, but, Lord, that we are committed to being the church, that we do have open hearts to your gospel, that we have open minds to your word, that we have open arms to each other, and we have open hands with people outside the church. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. Convict us when we're wrong. And it's your name I pray. Amen. We're going to come to our time of invitation. And I do when I always, every Sunday, I have an invitation for you. I always say it periodically that, man, if you walk in and out these doors every single week, and this goes the same for me too, if you walk in and out these doors every single week and nothing ever changes, then at some point it's like, why are we here? 
I mean, we ought to be changed, even if it's in the slightest way, by the word of God, by being with other believers. We ought to be changed somehow. So I have an invitation for you. It seems like in this world there are two extremes of people. There are people that think that you don't have to be committed to the church to be saved. And there are other people who think that because they warm a pew on Sunday morning that they're saved. There's kind of two extremes. And neither one of those things is, is a disciple. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus. So the question is, when's the last time you took a step? When's the last time you took a step towards God, towards Jesus? I hope for you that you will open your heart to believing in something bigger than you. I hope that you will open your mind. I pray, I don't hope, I pray you'll have your mind open to the word. I pray that you'll have open arms to people both near and far from God. I pray that you have open hands to share what God has blessed you with. But man, by not being committed to a group of believers, I want you to understand what you're missing out on. But I also want you to understand what other people might be missing out on if you're not there. It's important that we get together as believers. But also you need to be personally committed to relationship with Christ. Maybe you need to take a step towards Jesus today, and maybe that's a big step, the first step. And that is simply saying, you know what, I do believe what the Word of God says. I've never said it, and I need to say it today. I want to challenge you to say that. You have that chance. We're going to have our elders. Uh, we've got a few elders here, uh, men who are striving to, to be godly men. And they're going to be at the back of the rooms. And I just want to let you know they are available to pray. Maybe you just got something going on in your life that you just you want to pray about and you haven't talked to anybody about it. Um, they're available to you. They'd love to pray with you. Maybe you, you're kind of wrestling with something. You feel God tugging you in a certain direction. I want to let you know that they're available to pray with you as well. If you've got some sort of commitment that you need to make, a step that you need to make this morning, I want to invite you to do that. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you've got something on your heart today, don't be afraid to come out of your seat and to say, you know what, I want to talk about this. Uh, they're going to be there for you at the back of the room. Let's, let's sing.